It's the morning of Thursday, May 4th, one day after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again by 25 basis points. And I am joined by someone who was in the room while that happened, Nick Timoros, chief economics correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and author of Trillion Dollar Triage. Nick, welcome back to Forward Guidance. Thanks, Jack. I, I was in the room for the press conference, just to be clear. I wasn't in the actual room, which would have been cool. Correct. I'm, I'm trying to build you up, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there's so, so much to talk about. Just what are your, your broad thoughts about the meeting? What, what were your expectations going in and how did what actually happened meet those expectations? I think this meeting was as expected. So if you'd read sort of what I had written going into the meeting or what others had written, I think the view was that this would be setting the table for the pause. It was, uh, you know, there wasn't pause language in the statement. I had written that it seemed unlikely that they would do a Bank of Canada style pause in January. The Bank of Canada hiked. And then they said in the statement, governing council doesn't expect to raise interest rates for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so we didn't get that. But this was as close, I think, to a pause uh, as you were going to get from a committee that has had at times serious buyer's remorse, you know, they did 25 at the February meeting and then the data came in really hot afterwards. And there was probably a view until the bank uh, collapse in March that they should have done 50. Oh, if we had known the data was going to get this hot uh, around the turn of the year, maybe we should have stuck with 50. So they've had buyer's remorse at times. Uh, so they were never they're never going to rule something out at these sorts of possible turning points. But it was very pause adjacent. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is that the calculation, I think, around whether you hike again from here, uh, the bar has gone up a lot. The, the calculation now seems to be that the data would have to come in quite hot and maybe for more than one meeting cycle uh, to convince them to go up to five and a quarter or five and a half. Um, because you do have this problem of lags now, not just from the monetary policy tightening, but from the bank run or the bank, uh, you know, higher funding cost stress issues that um, probably haven't played themselves fully out here. Yeah, we'll get on to those bank issues in just a moment, but I'm just going to flash on screen the May Federal Reserve statement uh, relative to the March statement, what has changed? Can you just t tell us what about this language uh, is is sort of different? And do you think it leaves a June hike on the table? Uh, or is it more measured that they kind of thread the needle? And also did, um, what was I going to say? Uh, is, is kind of the burden of proof now on, oh, we have to see something in order to hike, rather, we have to see something not, uh, rather to pause. So sort of pausing is kind of like the baseline. Yeah, that that seems that seems that was how I heard it yesterday. I'll put it that way, and that was how other people, um, you know, in the markets that I talked to heard it. Uh, so, what's notable in the statement? Well, if you the, the I wrote a piece on Tuesday um, that looked back at 2006 because back in 2006 the statement was really the only way they could communicate around the meeting. There wasn't a press conference. There was no SCP that you could say, oh, well, in the last SCP we did this, and that's so. so there was much less guidance uh, in 2006. It was really in the statement. And in uh, if you go back to that period, and this is a long way to answer your question about, uh, I guess the short answer to your question, what was significant in the statement? What was significant in the statement was that there had been two sentences around uh, 
the next move. And one had been that sort of a promise of some additional firming uh, may be necessary or may be appropriate. And that came out. The sum may be appropriate. Uh, the committee anticipates. Anticipates is an important word. Uh, that came out. They could have changed it to judges. That's what they did in December 2018 when they were slowing down. They said, well, we're not sure how much more we have to do, so we'll change anticipates to judges. Yesterday, just uh, reading that, they got rid of it. They also took out the sufficiently restrictive sentence that uh, you know, we're trying to attain a stance that is sufficiently restrictive. They're no longer saying that they're trying to do that. So that could be read as some people at least thinking that they're sufficiently restrictive. They're not saying uh, anything more about that. And so let's go back to 2006 real quickly. That cycle was really the first one where they had used forward guidance through the cycle to guide expectations. And Greenspan did that in part because the 1994 hiking cycle, even though in hindsight, it was sort of this amazing success, right? You rate, you doubled the policy rate in 12 months from 3% to 6%. And all you did was, you know, a Mexico peso crisis, uh, Orange County bankruptcy, but you didn't really have a, a problem in the U.S. And we had a really good expansion through the rest of that period. Uh, but Greenspan didn't want to do that again. He wanted to tell people this time what he was doing. He had Ben Bernanke, uh, sort of the foremost, uh, you know, policy entrepreneur of this idea that you should tell the market what you're going to do. It'll help you actually get better policy. So they used the measured pace, uh, you know, we're going to remove accommodation at a, at a pace that is likely to be measured. They did that in June of four. They hiked at every meeting uh, by a quarter point. And by the end of 2005, they realized they were getting close to the end. They thought they were about 50 basis points away. And so Greenspan says, you can read all these transcripts, of course. And he says, obviously, this is getting stale. We're going to have to do something to change it. So they begin to usher the word measured, which had come on to, it had taken on this baggage, meaning 25 basis points at every meeting. They began to usher it out of the statement. They said, some measured firming may be appropriate. And then in January of 06, Greenspan's last meeting, they take out measured and they say uh, some additional policy firming may be necessary. Where have we heard that before? In the March 2023 statement. In March of this year, they basically started to set the table for a pause in the same way that they did in early 06. So back to January of 06, some policy firming may be necessary. They get to March, Bernanke's first meeting, and they keep that language in there because they're now thinking, actually, the economy is looking pretty good here. Uh, maybe a little bit tighter than we thought it was going to be. Inflation in 2006, core PCE rises above 2.5% that summer to 2.7% in August. And they're thinking about pausing with uh, core inflation higher than they want it to be. Um, so they get to the May meeting. And the May and June meeting of that year is the analog to where we were yesterday. Because in May, they could have dropped that language uh, in May of 06 the way that they did yesterday. Uh, but they didn't. They kept it. They said some policy firming may yet be appropriate. Yeah. Um, and then they added a sentence about the extent and timing of further actions will depend on the outlook. And so it was the June meeting where they made the last hike and they got rid of that kind of promise language. Now, they didn't realize, of course, at the time that that was going to be their last increase, but they had a good idea that it might be, which was why they made that change. Um one important difference between 2006 and yesterday at that June 06 meeting, 
uh, markets were were pricing in an 85% chance that the Fed would go again in August. And Bernanke says in the room, you know, I'm a new chairman. They don't know me. For all they know, I could be an inflation nutter. I want to tell people that we care about something besides inflation, which is output. So that was one of the reasons they made that change. Um, but so going into yesterday, I was thinking, all right, do we end up with something that is more May 2006? We're not going to really take a June hike that much off the table. We'll actually keep it on the table. Or do we just get rid of that language? Um, because we really think the next move might be a skip. Um, and I was talking to people who, you know, follow the same kind of Talmudic scripts of past Fed meetings. And you had people on both sides. You had former Fed staff saying, no, I really don't think they should take it out. They should keep some bias in for a June hike. And then there were other people saying, no, you just have to take it out now. Because if you tee it up and then you don't deliver, uh, you could actually ignite a bigger easing in financial conditions. So they went, I would say, with the June 06 type formulation. I imagine they realized that people would be doing this sort of, well, here's what they did last time and here's what it meant. And they had to be okay with that at a certain level. Now, the counterpoint to all this would be they just didn't say very much. They left their options open. They could do whatever they want now. But it did feel more pause-y than it would have been if you had kept that sentence in there. Right. So they still can pause. Uh, they still can hike in June. They left uh, that door open. But as you say, it's pausey. They uh, And the market's not pricing in anything for June it, right now. Exactly. I was going to say the market's actually pricing in uh, more likely a cut than a hike in, in June. Not that it's price, not that it's likely that there, there will be a cut. So, and that's unlike the, the forward interest rate markets were in June, 2006. Uh, and yeah, so that, that, that is, that is, uh, really interesting. Nick, now let's go on to the, the ongoing banking issues, which you cited, uh, Powell began his, uh, press conference before he even uh, got, took any questions. He said, uh, conditions in the banking sector have broadly improved since early March, and the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient. We'll continue to monitor conditions. We're committed to learning the right uh, lessons, and we'll work to prevent events like this from happening again. Uh, about two hours after he made those comments, uh, shares of P uh, Pacific West Bank Corp uh, were cut in half on news it's going to raise capital. So the issue that it appears it's over, oh, it's over, oh, now it's over, oh, it, it seems like we're still going going through this mess. And uh, just this morning, it was, it was announced that a planned merger between uh, Toronto Dominion Bank and uh, First Horizon was, was canceled. It's, it's not going to happen. That stock was cut in half. And again, we're recording it shortly after 10 in the morning, and the stocks could you know, double or anything can happen. And you know, we'll release this later today. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it it was pretty re remarkable. I mean, do you, what do you think uh, the Federal Reserve is think, thinking now? I mean, do you, do you think that Chair Jay Powell might have said something different if he could go back in time now? I don't know. I mean, it, it, you know, the, obviously the coincidence of that, that story breaking about the capital raise or the, uh, you know, strategic options at mm -hmm. PacWest, the big sell-off after market, uh, you know, after coming out and saying this is, you know, he said he, he started to say the First Republic thing is drawing a line. And then he said something. He kind of walked it back. Well, it's, it's an important step to drawing a line. Um, so you could look at this two ways. You could look at this and say the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, 
I compared it the other day to an earthquake because, it, you know, San Francisco, why not? It's a good analogy. Um, and, you know, when you have an earthquake, it can weaken the structures around the, the where the epicenter is, right? And so Silicon Valley Bank's failure weakened the foundation of First Republic, which prior to the run on Silicon Valley Bank seemed like a really attractive banking franchise. And it's now done the other similar things. People are looking at other banks. Well, who else kind of had this business model of relying on uh, very low cost deposits that you thought would never move? You maybe had made loans to sectors of the economy that might come under pressure now, tech, uh, commercial real estate. Who else looks like a Silicon Valley or a First Republic? And so you could say this is all still part of that sort of initial uh, uh, earthquake, and you're not seeing kind of new uh, shocks in other kind of corners of the banking industry. That would be kind of one interpretation. The other one would just be that the longer these things are in the headlines, the worse it is for confidence in the banking system. And you can go out and say as many times as you want that the banking system is sound and resilient. You don't have credit problems um, because you still have a solid economy. But you do have, you know, I like Jim Bianco's term. I, I heard it first from him. I don't know if he, uh, you know, if this is his, but uh, that we have bank runs and bank walks. Mm -hmm. And the bank walk, you know, even if you've addressed the bank run with something like the bank term funding program and the discount window and the home loan banks, you know, that's expensive relative to paying nothing on your deposits, right? It's it's cheap financing relative to what else is available in the market, but it's not cheap if you're losing deposits and you're not able to pay, you know, 10 basis points on your deposits or even 100 basis points on your deposits. So, so the bank walk issue, you know, to the extent that we haven't really resolved that because we are in a higher interest rate environment, the curve is very inverted. Um, and so, you know, that that's kind of where you start to wonder about uh, how how uh, bad this is going to get, um, how quickly it can get addressed. I mean, the other issue here uh, is, you know, unlimited deposit guarantees could be a, a policy solution, or if not a complete solution, they could help, right? They could provide more confidence that there's going to be a backstop behind these um, funds that might otherwise move. But Dodd-Frank says to the FDIC, you can't do a temporary guarantee again. You, you know, you uh, you have to get a joint resolution from Congress to do it. Go read section 1105 and 1106 of Dodd-Frank. I'm not a banking lawyer. Maybe I got it, you know, maybe I read it wrong. But um, so that's, that's an issue here too, is that there could be sort of policy solutions besides lowering interest rates, which the Fed obviously doesn't want to do, but they have kind of a political pain points that we haven't hit yet. Right. It Nick, that's such a good point about confidence. You know, if the, the stock of uh, Coca-Cola gets cut in half, people aren't going to buy fewer, you know, Coca-Cola. But if the stock of a certain bank gets cut in half, that is, you know, really damages confidence. Yeah. And then depositors can withdraw money because they 100%. can fear that. Yeah. And, and the, the cycle feeds on itself. And um, the, the other point I'd make on that real quick, Jack, is just that, you know, people always say, oh, the Fed watches the S&P. They pay such close attention to the S&P. I, you know, obviously they pay attention to equities and uh, asset values, but I often find 
that people overstate that idea that they're watching the S&P, but they do watch bank stocks exactly for the reason you just made. You know, bank stocks reflect the cost to finance, like it's the finance borrowing costs for bank. And so if that is moving down quickly, uh, then you do pay attention to that. You'd have to. Right. And so there is a line that should be drawn between the large systemically important banks that were fighting for their lives during the 2008 great financial crisis, which if they toppled would be an absolute disaster for the the entire world and regional banks where it it is really tragic if they fail, but the system can uh, move forward without, without those failures. How rigid is the line that the Federal Reserve draws uh, between them? And, you know, does the Federal Reserve, uh, are, they, are they thinking, oh, you know, if this bank fails, this bank fails, the system is fine. And by the way, there's too much credit anyway. Tightening credit actually makes our job easier. Uh, I mean, how many banks have to fail before they, if, if at all, change their view and, and uh, you know, want to stop, do, do something to help? You know, that's a good question. Bank failures are probably not things you want to trifle with. I mean, I kind of compare it. I'm always trying to think of analogies. The earthquake one uh, is pretty good. This next one, maybe not so much. But you know, you're trying to you're you're trying to do something difficult here, which is to get inflation down. And you have your tools that you're comfortable using. And you know, bank failures as the vehicle to get the economy to slow down. It's a little bit like riding the tiger. It, you know, maybe you can ride the tiger, but maybe the tiger is going to eat you, uh, and you'll die. So. I kind of, you know, riding the tiger is, it's, you know, that's kind of what I think of when people talk about, oh, well, we're going to use the threat of a debt limit default. Maybe that'll help the Fed accomplish its goals. Maybe if we really cut spending and don't pay the bills for a few weeks, you know, that'll help the Fed out. Well, yeah, but you get more than you bargained for. Um, Again, in my kind of like analogy locker uh, I like the glass ketchup bottle one. This is the idea that, you know, you're using monetary policy. It's like hitting the glass ketchup bottle. Nothing comes out. You keep hitting it. You keep hitting it. And then everything comes out. It's not some squeezable, finely tuned thing. So this idea, like, is there a, a number of bank failures the Fed would tolerate? Uh, the Fed doesn't want bank failures in the news, certainly not large banks uh, where lots of companies have payroll accounts and things like that, because you're just, you're undermining confidence. And uh, that isn't what anybody wants to do here. Definitely. And later, I'm going to ask about what the Federal Reserve can do, what tools it does have available. I, th- I think you you referenced uh, the, the TGLP, perhaps, which you know, uh, we, we can get into later. But yeah, just for now, uh, uh, Steve Leisman had a pretty explosive question about a report that the Federal Reserve uh, uh, produced and presumably Jay Powell read, I don't know, what, you, you tell me, uh, I think in mid-February, that warned about interest rate risk within the banking system and named Silicon Valley uh, Bank by name. So we can actually uh, put this on on screen. And uh, yeah. did, did this report, uh, it, it obviously was produced, but did Jay Powell uh, uh, read it? And, and also, sort of what was it like in the room uh, yesterday when, when that question was being asked, because it's a pretty intense moment. Well, you know, Steve always asks good questions, first of all. And he always, he, he asked a really a series of good questions yesterday. Um, and what Powell said was, I think he was asked, do you remember this presentation? He said, yeah, I remember it. 
uh, but if you look at that slide, I mean, it. I don't think it was news to a lot of people who follow this stuff that Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of uh, underwater securities. And, you know, uh, my colleague Jonathan Weil had written about this in November, a story about how many unrealized securities losses were in the banks. And, you know, the story focused uh, in part on Silicon Valley Bank as this presentation from a Kansas City Fed staffer and a board supervision staffer to the Fed board in, on February 14th did. So I don't think it was a surprise to people that, you know, there are these uh, underwater securities problems. I think what was what would have been interesting if it had been in that presentation and it wasn't was the concentration of deposits that, you know, what share of deposits were from VC firms, uh, VC funded firms, uh, the concentration of uninsured deposits, you know, going through and saying, OK, they have these losses that they're sitting on, but a lot of banks do and they can, you know, you can manage through it. Uh, but uh, if your companies are all burning cash because, you know, the, the tech boom is over and so now they're draining deposits. Mm -hmm. And so this cheap source of funding you had is leaving uh, and there's a run risk. I mean, those were the pieces, I think, in that presentation that weren't there. And this was just a presentation on. Uh, you know, interest rate risk management inside the bank. So I'm not suggesting it needed to be in there. But I don't know. Some people, I think, took this presentation and said, oh, in hindsight, you, it all should have been obvious that one month later there was going to be a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank. And maybe it should have been obvious, but I don't know how you get that necessarily from this. I mean, I guess I didn't find that um, slide quite as explosive, except for the fact that it pointed out what other people had been pointing out, which is that there's a lot of interest rate risk at Silicon Valley Bank. So now let's move on to what can the Federal Reserve do to uh, help the, the banking system? It has special facilities. It can create new ones, such as the uh, bank term funding program. Then there's a, uh, things that not, not the Federal Reserve can do, the Fed, FDIC, um, uh, uh, you know, other institutions that uh, the, Fed, you know, the Federal Reserve says it's, it's, it's not in, in its remit. Um, yeah, what what are some examples of something that if these banking issues continue to to uh, percolate and the, sort of the dominoes continue to fall, what might the Federal Reserve uh, the options be available to the Federal Reserve other than cutting rates? Right. Well, that's a good question, and I should caveat this by saying I'm not a banking expert, so uh, I'm sure there are viewers of your program who have forgotten more about this uh, than I know, um, but. You know, I go back to the COVID era when Powell was reminding everybody that the Fed has lending powers and not spending powers, right? And that's tr that's true here. The Fed can lend to banks that are solvent. Uh, it can't, you know, it can't reequify banks that are undercapitalized. Uh, it, you know, the bank management teams are going to have to do that. Uh, I was at a an event. Um, a couple of weeks ago in New York where John Williams spoke and he was asked, I thought, a really good question by an economist to Goldman Sachs, who basically said, you know, if there's a hole here in the regional bank system, uh, a capital hole, you know, what are the the question was something along the lines of what are the prospects for Congress coming in with something like a capital asset uh, restoration program, similar to what you had in the later versions of TARP, where you put equity into the banks because the banks actually have 
uh, you know, they've lost a source of funding, their margins are going to get squeezed, they may, you know, some of these banks may not make it. Um, and Williams, uh, you know, given his position, it's probably not something he's going to answer. But I thought that was the right question to be asking, which is, you know, if the bank term funding program can stop the bank run, but it can't deal with the bank walk, what other tools are available? So in 2008, the FDIC did a temporary unlimited guarantee of certain deposits. Um, it was, as you noted, it was through the TGLP. The TGLP had two components. One was, an, uh, was a debt uh, guarantee and one was a deposit guarantee called the TAG was the acronym. And in the Dodd-Frank Act, it says, don't do that again, FDIC. We don't want you to unilaterally guarantee all deposits. If you want to do it, we're going to lay out a series of things that you have to go through. Uh, and, you know, it provides a way to get an expedited joint resolution through Congress. But it's something like the Treasury Secretary and the FDIC have to declare that there has been a major liquidity event and blah, 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 blah. But bottom line is it says joint resolution of Congress. So and, and I haven't heard anybody suggest that my reading, my very layman's reading of the law is wrong, that it that there are ways to do this without the joint resolution of Congress. So I, say, I hear some commentary right now saying, oh, well, this is so easy to fix. All you need to do is turn on the TGLP, but anything that requires a joint resolution of Congress isn't easy to fix. I present to you exhibit the debt ceiling not getting lifted uh, as the TGA, as the Treasury General Account uh, gets whittled down here in the month of May. Um, so and then and then I think a, a lot of the other options you're getting into kind of I've heard people say, well, the Treasury Secretary could preemptively declare a systemic risk exemption for all banks and backstop mm -hmm. deposits that way. You know, Janet Yellen is a very uh, small C conservative uh, sort of, you know, she's not somebody looking to take on a huge amount of political risk by doing things that sort of violate the spirit of what. Congress has said it thinks should happen uh, in the law. So I think you have to sort of pay attention to some of the politics around this. And the challenge always in these sorts of events is when policymakers act quickly, like they did on March 12th with SVB and Signature, and you diffuse the, the immediate crisis, you also take away, you maybe rob some of the urgency to do mm -hmm. the things that you know, are ultimately going to get there. And I think in 2008, we saw that, you know, you you bailed out Bayer, which took the urgency away to do something. Congress did pass the legislation to deal with Fannie and Freddie that summer, but didn't do anything for the investment banks or the broader, um, you know, subprime uh, losses on balance sheets. And then you had Lehman fail. And then it was kind of like, oh, well, actually, the banks are undercapitalized now, and we need to do TARP. Uh, and, you know, you had to go through a lot of stress to get there. And of course, everybody's hoping that this won't be like that. Um, and and I'm not trying to suggest that this is 2008. I'm just trying to make the point that, you know, the, the politics of these things can sometimes be difficult because everybody's against bailouts. You know, moral hazard exists and you want to manage it. But you also don't want to take steps that require even bigger kind of life-saving efforts later um, on that point, you know, I always encourage people to go read the transcript of the September 16th, 2008 FOMC meeting. That's the day after Lehman went down and you can read what everybody around the table was saying about where they thought we were in the, in the crisis. 
And at that time, you know, uh, CPI had printed above 5% that summer. And I think around half of the FOMC, I didn't do an exact headcount, but there were a lot of people around the FOMC that day who said inflation was the bigger worry than financial strains. Lehman had been telegraphed. Everybody knew it was going to go down. The Fed had tools to deal with that. They didn't cut rates that day. Rates were at 2% at the time. That was seen as very low. Um, and in hindsight, everybody says, oh, it's obvious. It's going to be a terrible thing. But you know, if you kind of want to scare yourself, go read that transcript because you can see what an environment of high inflation uh, or fears of high inflation will do when you're presented with a financial stability threat. FDIC is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The TGLP is the Temporary Liquidity Guarantee Program. You're saying Dodd-Frank legislation said uh, made it so that the FDIC can no longer unilaterally uh, uh, make that guarantee. So you talked about the FDIC, you talked about the Treasury, and you talked about Congress, but you didn't talk a lot about the Federal Reserve. Where do the Federal Reserve's responsibilities and abilities lie within uh, that con continuum? And I can also say in, in 2008, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns were not banks who had uh, a lot of you know, commercial depositors, if at all. They funded themselves in repo wholesale markets. Right. So the Federal Reserve could say, oh, this is kind of our lane. The FDIC not involved. FDIC involved in Washington Mutual, sure, but you know, not Lehman because they didn't have depositors. Uh, however, in this case, the, the banks who are having issues do have depositors. So that it gives maybe the Federal Reserve the ability to say, oh, hey, this is not my problem. This is the FDIC's problem. So yeah, where does the Federal Reserve lie, lie in all this? Well, it, it depends first on whether the bank is an FDIC regulated bank or a Fed regulated bank. So, you know, First Republic was FDIC, Silicon Valley was Fed. Obviously, the Fed has to care about what's happening to all the banks, but you know, they didn't really have any involvement, as far as I know, direct involvement in what happened on Sunday night with the sale of First Republic to J.P. Morgan. That was an FDIC bank. Um, so it, it depends. PacWest, for what it's worth, is regulated by the San Francisco Fed. Um, but, you know, the Fed is a top banking regulator, so they're going to be involved in a lot of these decisions, uh, either, you know, through a consultative process or through actually administering policy. Um, they run the discount window. They have these other uh, this this other program that they've created, you know, I've heard some people say, well, could they accept different collateral at the discount window? Um, you know, non-conforming mortgages, municipal bonds, in order to try to help institutions that have particular problems. And I, you know, I haven't heard that. I don't know that that's under discussion. I think the point that I come back to again is, will that actually fix the underlying problem? You know, you can fix the bank run by lending freely at a rate, uh, you know, at a reasonable rate or a penalty rate. But um, does it fix the bank walk issue? Is there, is there a way the Fed can fix the bank walk issue short of cutting the policy rate, you know, back uh, to a place where the curve is, isn't this inverted? I am not so sure about that. And, uh, you know, Rob Kaplan, the former Dallas Fed president, did a really interesting interview with uh, the investment shop Evercore ISI a couple of weeks ago. He compared these Fed, uh, you know, emergency lending programs to a ventilator. You know, it's like being on a ventilator. You're alive, but you don't really want to live the rest of your life on a ventilator. And that's sort of what we saw with First Republic. They had borrowed heavily from the discount window and the, um, they had borrowed somewhat from the bank term funding program. But if you're replacing low-cost deposits with 4.5% overnight money, then 
you're not, you know, you're, you're dealing with the run. You're not dealing with the problem of, okay, your funding costs are going up a bunch, your margins are getting squeezed, and your franchise, the bank franchise, looks different now because you probably aren't getting those deposits back that ran out the door. Right. So the Federal Reserve's new tool, the Bank Term Funding Program, announced two days after the the, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank that uh, extend credit, short-term borrowings to banks in the same way the discount window does, but they can do it for a duration of up to a year and uh, they, they um, can refinance uh, um, anytime. Oh, and the most important part, they can accept the, the collateral at par. So that help right. does help the banks. But in terms of- you're buying, you're buying treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities at inflated. You borrow, you're, you're able to borrow against inflated prices. Yes, and that's interesting. You you started to say buying and buying and borrowing in you know common parlance are very different things. But when you talk about repo, the the line doesn't become so so uh, um, you know uh, clear. And also, the Fed's balance sheet went up because of the uh, BTFP bank confronting program, and that's why people are saying, "Oh, this is quantitative easing again." I mean, yeah. Do you, do you have a view on this is quantitative easing? Um, yeah, I don't. I mean. I think it's helpful to define what these terms are. So, you know, if you're sort of one of, if you, if you are kind of have a more monetarist view, then you'll say, well, it doesn't matter what it is. The balance sheet grew. That's providing liquidity to the market. But I think if you look at actually where's the liquidity going and is it being lent out, I mean, $100 billion in liquidity to First Republic Bank, which then gets bought by JP Morgan, that liquidity is probably not getting recycled into the economy in the form of loans uh, or securities purchases. So, I would answer your question in the negative. That's not quantitative easing. The Fed, I mean, Powell was asked about this in the March press conference, and he began it by saying something like, well, let me tell you how I think about it, um, which whenever he says his personal view, I pay attention to that because he doesn't always offer his personal view. But the Fed's view is, no, this isn't, you know, you could think of it as like a possession arrow in basketball game, like the direction of travel right now on monetary policy is towards tightening. They're doing this. They hope it'll be temporary. We don't know if it'll be temporary. Um, you know, maybe the balance sheet fell to 8.3 trillion and it'll never fall below that level because other things are going to happen now. We don't know. Um, just like they didn't know when the balance sheet fell to 3.7 trillion in September 2019 that that was going to be the low. Um, but um, their, their view is that they, they are still planning to shrink the balance sheet, even if, you know, the discount window borrowing and the bank term funding program stay elevated. If those things go away, then the balance sheet will continue to decline. They are not attempting to arrest. Uh, they're not attempting to stop a slowdown in the runoff of the balance sheet here, though that could be happening because of these offsetting uh, lending programs. So they don't see it as QE. And to me, that's important because uh, that means, and they've been pretty firm here that they plan to continue with the runoff of uh, of the mortgage and the treasury securities. They, they really don't want to change that. I'm always asked before every FOMC meeting by, you know, by readers, why don't you ask them about QT? That's what really matters. You always ask about interest rates, but all we care about is QT. And I'm sorry to disappoint people. I don't ask about QT at every press conference because his answer is usually going to be the same. They do not want to change it. They do not think that they need to change it. You know, even the overnight reverse repurchase 
program. There had been some speculation a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, maybe they'll tweak it. Maybe they'll cut the rate because uh, they want to try to get money out of that facility. But they've been pretty clear in their very cryptic sort of uh, statements that they make about these things. You read the minutes, you listen to the speeches by the you know, interim uh, SOMA manager. They don't really want to change these things. So, um, so that's kind of how I take it. Right. And your, your point about it not being QE is that discount window and the uh, bank term funding program, the balance sheet expansion is dependent upon banks needing it, whereas quantitative easing is, oh, we're increasing our balance sheets $120 billion every month. And by the way, a lot of those treasuries and a lot of those mortgage-backed securities that the Fed bought in March, April 2020 are still there, whereas it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a short-term nature. So, so Nick, I, I can see at this juncture, it sees, oh, the bank term funding program, the Fed, Federal Reserve has already assisted the, uh, 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 the banking system and any other facilities uh, that you mentioned, accepting you know, non-qualifying collateral, other thing, maybe lending at uh, you know, e- easier rates seems at this time quite wacky but you know nick as as we we know because you covered it in a trillion dollar triage which i you know really recommend the federal reserve has immense powers if it wants to do so it it did things in march and april of 2020 that in february it had never dreamed of of doing or most people had never dreamed of doing i i think it is fair to say a lot of those programs you know didn't end up being used because of uh, the confidence that was restored uh, um and and fiscal and and all those sorts of stuff but if thing is is it fair to say nick would you agree with the statement that what would limit the fed reserve from doing you know facilities that are a lot more than the btfp is its willingness to do so not the fact that it it can't Right. Well, I think there's just also the question of the right tool for the job here. Like, what would another facility accomplish right now? Uh, you don't have credit problems right now. Uh, you don't have, you know, you could have defaults on office buildings and, you know, uh, private credit and all the things that people are always worried about, but you don't see that right now. So I think the question is, it's not clear exactly what, you know, 13.3 facilities would solve except maybe something at the margins. Um, and so I think it actually becomes a question for other policymakers here, uh, whether it's the other regulators or Congress. And because we're in this high inflation environment where the Fed continues to say, you know, we're focused on fighting inflation, it does constrain to some extent what they're able to do. Uh, we, you know, there's a risk that you ask the Fed to do too much in, in you know, that was... Uh, maybe clear in hindsight in 2020, as I write about in my book, the Fed did things that had never done before. Fiscal policy, of course, also did a lot. But now, you know, we're basically fighting inflation uh, very, very heavily through the Fed. You had, I guess, you could count some of what happened with the oil reserve last year as as, as trying to make uh, trying to make their work a little bit easier too. But um, and so on the inflation side, it's pretty much all the Fed. And you kind of get into questions here, all right, well, if you're also going to ask the Fed to be the you know, the top or only firefighter on any banking issues when there are other things that you could do um, on the deposit side, then um, I think it's, it's a very tricky, it becomes a very tricky situation. Someone asked Powell, uh, about a, a trade-off between, I think, the monetary policy, monetary st- uh, st- stability, and and the, and the uh, financial tools. In other words, what if 
to, to really help the banks, you know, rate cuts, cuts are needed. Uh, what did, did, what did Powell say, uh, yesterday on that front? And, and what did you think? Well, of I don't remember th- if this is the same thing that you're asking about, but, uh, Steve Leisman from CNBC did ask about, you know, what's called the separation principle. Yes. Chris Waller has talked about it as the right tool for the right job. So we use monetary policy to, uh, to, to, to crush demand, to bring inflation down. And we use these financial stability tools to get liquidity into the banking sector so that we don't have to use the monetary policy tool to deal with that. And uh, and Powell said, like so many things on the separation principle, like so many things, it's very useful, but ultimately it has its limits. So he's not, I would say, an absolutist on this, that we're only going to do one thing with this tool. At a certain point, the the, the banking crush could become important enough to say, all right, you know, don't keep raising interest rates. And that was implicit, I think, in the last two meetings in the statement and the pause. Uh, if that's what's happening now, the fact the terminal has been rated lower than they thought it was before. I mean, it, at a certain point, it's not like they're just going to put blinders on and say, well, we're going to completely ignore everything that's happening in the banks. At a certain point, you have to say, you know, we're not stopping the inflation fight where uh, instead what's happening is we're expecting more of a slowdown than we anticipated. And so that's factoring into the outlook. It's, it's just very difficult to do that. I mean, it's very difficult to quantify what this banking stress is going to do. And back to that Kaplan interview from a few weeks ago, he said there's a tendency inside the Fed to want to boil everything down to linear basis points. This banking stress is worth 15 basis points in tightening. And, you know, these things, they can be nonlinear. They can be hard to model. Uh, it, it can be hard to do that. Powell also said, you know, he said, it does complicate. We have a broad understanding of monetary policy. Credit tightening is a different thing. And again, I'm thinking of, you know, writing the tiger here. He's basically saying, we think we know pretty well how to model our interest rate actions. But when you kick off something in the banking environment now that has its own dynamics behind it, it's a different thing. And so that, you know, that's creeping very much now part of the debate. And I think it's going to creep into, I mean, I'm curious now to see kind of where are the hawks on the committee after this meeting? And tomorrow there's a, you know, an armchair discussion between Neil Kashkari and Jim Bullard, who have both been, uh, you know, on the hawkish side of the committee since 2021, were probably the two most dovish members of the committee in 2019. And so I'm curious to see now where are, you know, how do the Hawks feel about this, um, you know, pause language? And as um, Bullard had been quite dismissive after the March meeting about the prospect for the banking crisis to really derail um, their march to a five and a half percent terminal rate. He said he put, I think, 75 percent or 80 percent odds that this wouldn't really do much to uh, derail the economy. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious now, and also, you know, do the dubs now feel emboldened to go out there and say, yeah, I'm not voting for any more increases until I see X, Y, and Z. And we're not going to see that until Labor Day. So schools out guys, uh, summer vacations here. 
<laughs> yeah. And what are you seeing, hearing on the credit front? You know, needless to say, credit bank lending really greases the wheels of the economy. And when it is you know, ample, as it was in 2021, 2022, uh, the economy can do very well. When it slows down, 2008, that is, you know, economic uh, activity can, can, can um, come to a standstill. Uh, we've seen, you know, just looking through some bank reports, banks are decreasing their, their loans, uh, um, a spe- a, a decreasing the pace of, of loan growth, as to say, in aggregate. Some banks, especially regional banks, are actually, you know, cutting back on lending dramatically. Uh, the Beige Book, which I forget exactly when it came out, but that was a quite uh, pessimistic, quite a grim outlook on bank lending. Uh, you know, words that I, you know, Beige Book typically thought of as, as a somewhat, uh, you know, mundane uh, document. They, they, they were using language like deterioration and, uh, you know, tightening that I, I was not ex- expecting. So the Beige Book, that, that is out. Uh, however, there's also the Sluice Senior Loan Officer uh, Survey, that, which hasn't been released yet, but but journalists asked about it. And, uh, yeah, pa- 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 uh, Powell, um, Powell's answer made it seem like he thinks you know, based on what he's seeing, that credit is, is tightening. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. So we'll get the senior loan officer survey on Monday. Uh, you know, Tom Barkin made an interesting point uh, when I asked him about this a few weeks ago. Um, you know, when you ask, he said, when you ask banks, are you pulling back on credit? They're going to say yes. But it, even then, it can be kind of hard to quantify from these surveys, you know, just how bad is it getting? If every bank says, yes, we're really tightening credit, well, it's kind of hard, you know, okay, then, uh, yeah, you know, the, again, the direction of travel, but you, it'll be hard to know the magnitude maybe from these surveys. This isn't like, you know, being able to look up the uh, high yield spread yeah. and say, oh, high yield spreads have blown out because you have these, you know, uh, deals you can look at. Um, it's not, and, and I would add, you know, the mortgage market is quasi-nationalized in this country. Uh, because a lot of mortgage lending, the banks are just the broker servicer. They're selling the credit risk into the MBS market through the GSEs. And so as long as the GSEs are functioning normally, which they are, uh, you, you know, the, the pullback that you might expect to see in um, in bank credit, it won't necessarily show up in the mortgage market, except for maybe certain segments, it's kind of subsectors of mortgage lending that have to be portfolio loans. So we're really talking about commercial and industrial lending and commercial real estate. Um, and I think the challenge there is that a lot of it's going to be anecdotal, survey driven. You're not going to see it for a while in the kind of quantifiable measures. And so that just makes this a little bit more difficult. But Monday, we'll get kind of one one snapshot of it in the senior loan officer survey. And then, you know, bank earnings um, when they report after this quarter could be another sort of uh, piece of soft and hard data of sorts. Um, that That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Uh, yesterday, Powell was asked if he had any regrets, and he said, I've, I've had a few. What might some of those be? And are there additional re- regrets that he has maybe uh, now that the, you know yesterday's uh, bank issues c- continue to be to be a problem? Well, you know, it's. I think it's obvious uh, in hindsight what some of the f- things the Fed has done that they wouldn't do again. Powell, you know, um, can sometimes I find it sort of disarming when he's like, "Yeah, I've made mistakes." Uh, he did this in the November interview that he did with David Wessel at the Brookings Institution, 
where he basically looked back at the guidance that they did in September and December 2020. This was kind of a three-part test for liftoff, where they committed to stay at zero until they had met that test, and that they would buy asset purchases until they had made substantial further progress against those conditions. And he said, yeah, I wouldn't do that again. So I think you could put that down as one regret was, you know, they unrolled this new framework and, you know, inconvenient, in, in hindsight, it was at the wrong time. They thought it was at the right time because they thought, here we we are worried about being stuck at zero when we get hit with the mother of all shocks. And now that's exactly what's happening. And no one's going to think that we're going to be able to hit this new 2% inflation target. So we really got to prove it to them that we're going to hit that new inflation target and we're going to stay at zero until, you know, we can be darn sure of it. So that's a regret. I mean, I, you know, the the fact that this Silicon Valley bank run happened and they weren't able to, you know, buy time to get the bank to the discount window, slow down the run, um, you know, it makes it look like the supervisors just didn't have their finger on the pulse. There's the Zelensky video uh, last week that came out. This is a phone call, a video conference call that he did with someone who he thought was the prime, uh, the president of Ukraine in January. So, yeah, I mean, it hasn't been, I think the last year has not been fun at times. They've had to do a lot of things they didn't think they were going to have to do, like raising interest rates a lot. Uh, they got to 5% in 14 or 15 months. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm sure, you know, readers uh, in the comments or wherever will point out other uh, other mistakes. But those are, I think, some of the um, more obvious, obvious ones. And the Fed's mistakes, you know, they're always obvious in hindsight mm-hmm. um, as well. They're, you know, they're having to make decisions in real time about um, how, how they assess the risks. And uh, when they get it wrong, it's obvious. I mean, inflation is transitory. A lot of people were saying that at the time. Subprime is contained. Uh, you know, so I guess don't go out there and say that the banking problems are, uh, you know, contained because uh, that could come back and haunt you. Yeah, on the uh, we, we talked about what the Federal Reserve can do, its facilities uh, for, for for banking, but just on the narrative in terms of what Fed Chair Powell says, you know, the language yesterday of the banking system is strong and resilient, and you know, banking conditions have improved. Do you think that narrative will change a little bit if if more banks continue to kind of wobble? Well, I think they'll, I think they'll be very careful. I think, you know. They just have to be very careful. And, and, you know, there were, I think it was Dario Perkins, there's a market judge who basically said they kind of have to say that the banking system is sound. Um, Like, what else are they going to say? So, I don't know. If the challenges, I think if the challenges intensify, then they'll just kind of be very clinical in describing what those challenges are. Um, But at the end of the day, this is a confidence game. And you want policymakers to try to shore up confidence. And I think they've tried to do that by basically saying, don't worry about your uninsured deposits. We are going to use a systemic risk exemption to make sure, or we're going to do things like, you know, sell the bank uh, in a loss share with the FDIC. But one way or another, the uninsured deposits are going to be safe. And that apparently has helped to stabilize deposit outflows. Now, you know, equity holders haven't been told that. And so you see what's happening now. Equity holders get nervous when uh, they begin to wonder if the bank is kind of in no man's land. 
and uh, things can kind of break against the bank pretty quickly, as we've seen uh, in a couple of these cases now. I want to ask you about your question to Jay Powell uh, yesterday. The second part, your your follow up, you asked about evidence uh, that the Federal Reserve would would have to see uh, to make a condition uh, decision on uh, hikes or or to pause, and particularly about six weeks, uh, which is when the next Fed meeting is on, um, in June. How did you interpret Powell's answer to that? Well, I don't want to overread too much into it, but you know what I was getting at was he. Howard Schneider from Reuters had asked him if they were at sufficiently restrictive policy. And he said, well, we're going to we're going to let the data tell us. And so my question was basically, you know, well, you know, how long is the clock running here? Is this something because up until now, it's basically been we're going to decide before every meeting and make a move at every meeting. And it'll be 25 or 50 or 75. And I think the question now is. Are you going to allow maybe more than one meeting cycle to transpire more than six weeks to go by before you feel like you have to make that decision? You know, you could collect six weeks of data and say, okay, I want six more weeks of data or even another six weeks of data, 18 weeks of data, kind of back to that summer vacation point. And I'm, I'm not, um, you can go read, go read his answer to the question I kind of thought it was consistent with the idea of you might not have to make that decision by June 13th. You could maybe take more time, but I I don't know. I thought, um, but that was what I was that was what I was trying to get some clarity on was, you know, all right, will you necessarily have to decide in six weeks uh, based on the even if the data is hot, right? If we got a really strong jobs report on Friday and we get another one in June. Would that necessarily tell you that you're not sufficiently restrictive or could you wait another meeting to decide? Right. Uh, Paraphrasing what he said is the Federal Reserve wants to see more than six weeks of data to make an active decision to sort of move off autopilot. I was still thinking autopilot was hiking. But you're saying that the new autopilot perhaps could be pausing. And, you know, I'm going to go with your your point of view on that. Well, and just look at I mean, look at where the market's priced right now for June. Uh, you know, so they'll have to go out and try to price it or the data will have to price it the way the data priced, uh, you know, more in after the February one meeting, the market thought, oh, we're, we're one, we're one hike away from terminal. And then the data came in screaming hot. I think that the other thing now though, is they're not just focused on inflation and employment data. They're focused on this bank stuff. As we've discussed, you're not going to, you may not get like an all clear signal, by June 13th on the banking stuff. So if the banking stuff matters more, does that change your reaction function? That's, you know, it's just an open question that I have. You're saying it's possible the Fed could pause, not hike in June, but maybe hike later. Historically, uh, is there a lot of evidence of the Federal Reserve pausing and then hiking again? Uh, Well, not really, but you do have in the 1990s, you know, they did a few cuts. They did three cuts after they had hiked a bunch and then they went back to hiking, you know. So um, it's not the norm. It's not the norm where, but it's also not the norm to do 75 basis points at four consecutive meetings. So I'm not sure, you know, how much we, we draw from this. I think the other question I have right now is, you know, the market's pricing and cuts because they investors think inflation will fall. And the question I have is, do investors see that primarily for what I would say are good reasons, supply chain improvements, 
uh, less pressure on oil and rents. Those are things that could lead to less labor market strength and less wage growth. Or, you know, do investors think inflation is going to fall and the Fed's going to cut because we're going to have a sharp deterioration in growth and a real hard landing? That, you know, those are different. Those could, you know, put you in different places, the answers to that. Right. So, Nick, that's we have some clarity on hikes, you know, a likely pause. Again, they definitely could hike in June, but it's a likely pause. That's what the market is pricing in. What about on cuts? I know up until this meeting, whenever Jay Powell was asked about cuts and the, the cuts that were priced into the curve, he said, you know, pretty sternly, that's not what we're seeing. Uh, what did he say yesterday? And was there any change, any indication at all that he might be a little bit more warranted, you know, even if it's just a 1% change than he was in March or February 1st? You know, he was asked about it in February and his answer was basically the market has a different view than we do. Uh, and they have a different view on the outlook. They don't, you know, he wasn't really challenging their read of the, of the Fed's reaction function. He was saying, look, they think that the inflation is going to come down a lot faster than we do. And we'll see who's right. And after that meeting, the market moved to where the Fed was. And I think he sort of, he generally repeated that view yesterday. He said, look, we on the committee have a view that inflation is only going to go down slowly. And so that's why we don't think we're going to cut. And if, you know, the, the, uh, the, if the economy does something different, then we'll see. But he wasn't really pushing back hard because he was saying maybe the market has a different view. But if you, he was basically saying, if you share the view that it is going to be you know, a, a longer slog, a longer battle on inflation, then you shouldn't price in cuts. If you have a 20 percent, if you know, if you think there's a 20 percent chance that we're going to have a really hard landing and that is consistent with a lot of cuts, then maybe the, you know, the distribution you're seeing in the market kind of splits the difference there. I, I, I don't know. Again, I'm sure a lot of your viewers uh, are far more practiced in this uh, and could explain it better than I can. Yesterday, Fed Chair Powell was asked about the debt ceiling, his general thoughts on it, the, the consequences of a, of a you know, potential default, what the Federal Reserve might do. He was very clear that that is not uh, the remit of the Federal Reserve, that is for Congress to get their house in order. And the consequences of a debt ceiling are so horrible that nobody should even think about that, which you know, to me seemed like quite strong language. Is, it, is an analogy uh, that, that what Fed Chair is saying, an analogy of if there's a big story in the news about sports or politics, you know, it's a big story, but you're not going to cover it because it's not your beat. You know, you're, you, you cover finance and economics. It's not your, your beat. Is, is that what Fed Chair Powell is saying? It's the debt ceiling. That's not my beat. Yeah, he doesn't want people to think that there's some, you know, magic secret solution that the Fed can just pull a rabbit out of a hat here. And you see people talking about the coin or the 14th <laughs> Amendment and uh, you know, that, that just, it's, it's really not how you want to function the, you know, the, uh, it's kind of the most advanced industrial democracy to have these kind of hijinks around paying the bills. So, uh, remember, I mean, the whole way that Powell kind of came back into public service, uh, as I write in my book in 2011, he was the Republican of the bipartisan policy center that the Obama administration was, you know, relying on to go out and say, you can't, you know, you just have to do this. You may not like it, but defaulting is crazy. It's not really a serious strategy for getting the spending cuts you want to get because uh, a bunch of bad things will happen and people listen to him. And that was how he became a governor on the board of governors of the Fed. Um, and so it's, you know, now he's, he's kind of taking this studiously neutral approach but I think yesterday he just doesn't want to indulge some idea that there's some fantasy where, you know, but yeah, could the Fed buy defaulted Q-SIPs in the 
treasury market to keep things going? Well, sure. But why would you want to put yourself in a position, you know, I think from the Fed's perspective, why, why would you why would you want to do that? That's not really fixing the problem. You're still going to have to raise the debt limit at the end of the day. And so for the people to see the Fed as like a way to have it avoid the hard vote that they might have to take, you know, that's just um, it's just kind of an icky place for the Fed to be. Right. And even if the Federal Reserve definitely does not want to, to do that, is there a chance, though, that they, even though they don't want to do that, there is a chance that they do that. They just will never say that, you know, like if they're never going to tell, oh, we're pivoting, by the way, we're going to pivot. So be prepared for the pivot, you know? Yeah, well, you, you, if you do things that make people think they don't have to act, then are you actually helping, right? That would be one point of view. I know some people think they should just say what their playbook is so that you provide some clarity. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's like saying, well, if you drive off the road, then here's where the tow truck will meet you. And so it's okay to drive off the road. Like, no, like it's not good to drive off the road. What do you think will happen first? Interest rate cuts or a a stop of quantitative tightening? Uh, Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I try not to get into the prediction game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, their, their order of operations has been that the tools should work in the same direction. So when they started to cut in 2019, they stopped the runoff of the treasury part of the balance sheet. They continued to run off the mortgages up until March of 2020. So, you know, in kind of a normal order of operations, you know, when they cut, they've sort of said they will continue to run the balance. They will stop running the balance sheet down. It would be a good question, actually, at a press conference, if that's still the case, uh, you know, uh, and if we get into some of these meetings here where they're maybe not acting, you know, it, get, it does give more of an opportunity to ask about different things. Yeah, well, it's it's a wild time. Uh, you know, it's now 11 in the morning on May 4th, and we're going to get air this interview as soon as possible. Uh, um, so it's you know f- fresh for everyone. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, people should follow your work on Twitter at Nick Timoros. Uh, your excellent work in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, people should always read uh, if they want to be informed on the Federal Reserve. They should uh, ch- on their phone. There's a bell button where they get a notification anytime your story comes out. That's uh, if you want. I mean, if you want to, you know. It's, it's, things move quickly. So if you want to be informed, you got to do that. And the book, Trillion Dollar Triage, uh, it, 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 really, it really is excellent. So Nick, thank you so much for joining us and thank you everyone for watching. Thanks so much. Have a great one. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.